We are straight-talking Southern girls in our 50s, and that's what you're going to get. Welcome to Ladies Roadmap. We're your hosts, Joe Jamie Tyler and Lana Helda. Come along for the ride and join us as we travel to bring you thought-provoking subjects and women who inspire and strive to make a difference in the world. Hello. Today, we have Kathy O'Dowd. Kathy is from South Africa and was the first woman to reach the summit of Mount Everest, climbing from both sides. She is an author of the best-selling book, Just for the Love of It. She currently lives in Andorra in the Pyrenees Mountains and travels the world as a motivational speaker on leadership and teamwork. And Kathy has done so many different expeditions in places that I cannot even pronounce. So we're going to let Kathy tell us all about her many expeditions. Welcome, Kathy. We're so honored to have you on our show. You are like the most fearless chick we have ever met. Welcome. Thank you. I think for me, the whole point is not to be the, the conquering of things or the like, oh yeah, I'm so fearless. It's, it was in the title of the book. I got so sick of men writing books about the death zone and kill a mountain and I conquered. It's like, oh, it's actually fun. That was where the title came from, just for the love of it, to get out there and climb big things, small things around the world, because it's just such an inspirational thing to do. Well, and definitely that would be a word I would use for you as inspirational. But I wanted to ask you, you know, now when you're speaking to corporation and other groups, you discuss how these experiences gave you a much deeper insight of not only to yourself, but individuals and teams and how the success of any mission really depends on how you do come together in the face of overwhelming challenge. Will you elaborate on that a little bit? Yes, that's one of the key elements where climbing and the world of business essentially intersect. So I make my living as a motivational speaker. I've been all over the world. It's a a completely unexpected opportunity that came out of the Everest climbs. But the truth is, business executives don't want a sort of story of personal inspirational achievement, or certainly in Europe they don't. I think Americans may be more open to that kind of personal uh, achievement. But Europeans are pretty, uh, we, we're leading teams. We want to know about teams. So as a mountaineer, I think there are two really interesting crossovers. The one is that there's a certain type of ambitious, egotistical, A-type achiever who puts their hand up to either lead companies or to climb big mountains. They're not the best at cooperating with each other. Mm. They're very keen at competing, racing up a mountainside to see who gets to the top first. But that's not necessarily an effective way of dealing with a really big challenge, big risks, plays out over time. You need a lot of strategy. A lot of the time you're going backwards, you're stuck, you're having to retreat, you're having to try again from a different direction. And I think that's particularly where women are so underrated. And we do it to ourselves. It's not just we're being shut out, we shut ourselves out. Because so much of this is not about who climbs the mountain the fastest or who carries the biggest rucksack or looks the most macho in the photos. It's about who's in it for the long term, who can endure, who can collaborate, who can work with a team, who can 
overcome the stress, who nine weeks in on the expedition can still manage a smile in the morning and think straight about what needs to be done next and work together to make that happen. Okay, so this is, yeah, so this is so interesting. And so where did this, this sense of strength and fortitude come from for you? Were you always this determined? Yes and no. In a, I was a very introverted, shy child, which meant I came across as being aloof because I wasn't terribly good at social interaction. But on the other hand, I was a relatively stubborn child. So I went my own way, even when that meant thinking that was probably slightly strange. Uh, but I wasn't much one for peer pressure. I was just one for quietly doing my own thing. And that brought me into adulthood, at one hand, not terribly self-confident. I certainly wasn't, I'd never have thought I was going to be a motivational speaker as a, <laughs> as a career. You know, that seems far too gregarious and extroverted. But on the other hand, it did make me quietly determined to try and do my own thing. And I think what I had to learn was not so much about how to keep on going up a mountainside. I could work that out. I had to learn how to deal with a team, how to step up in a space largely full of men and make my voice heard and believe in the value of my own opinion, stand up for what I thought was right within a group. And I also had to learn how to deal with failure. I think I was quite, this is a certain type of slightly perfectionist middle-class girl who's not used to not doing well, pleases her parents, pleases her teachers, and then you hit adult life and you can't please everyone and you've got to fail at things if you're ever going to do big things. And that first Everest expedition, which was a colossal failure in certain ways, we had a member of the team killed, we had three members of the team who walked out, we were notorious for the infighting within the team and then we ran into the situation, one of the, the worst storms ever to hit Everest. So teams around us were crumbling in the face of the disaster of the storm so, you know, people think, oh, but you got to the top, it's a success. And like, it didn't feel like a success. Really? But in retrospect, it was an amazing learning experience, having to deal with all that challenge, all that failure, all that criticism in the media, and come out from the other side and go like, yeah, mixed experience, but God, I learned a lot. And it opened so many doors. Well, you know, that, remind, that may, brings me to one of, one of the many things I saw when I was researching you. Someone wrote in an article that in the picture, you didn't have your oxygen mask on or a jacket on, so it must be fake. How did you reconcile that in your mind and deal with it? That wasn't ever something that was taken seriously. Okay. There are some things in life where, you know, this is like the Flat Earth Society, where you, all, all you can do is shrug and laugh. I mean, the whole point about the summit of Everest, Everest is climbed without oxygen. It's not as if you take your oxygen mask off and drop dead. Right. <laughs> you just get tired faster than you do if you're breathing supplementary oxygen. You know, um, so... That wasn't the sort of level of criticism that cut because it was too stupid. The criticism that cuts is the stuff that has some bounds in reality where people decide that they know you and can judge you based on what they read in a newspaper. And somehow women get judged 
even more heavily. So one that cut, for example, as I said, a member of our team got killed near the end. We ended up on national TV talking about it. I didn't cry. So clearly I was a callous bitch who didn't care because girls have to cry when they're sad. Mm. There is only one way of dealing with grief. And, you know, who wouldn't want to be on national TV sobbing? I'm a private person. That's just not how it works. But, yeah, men don't get held to a standard. Your grief is fake because you didn't cry on TV. Can can we switch this around real quick? Because I'm interested in as one of the – were you one of the only females on the – on the, yes. uh, so I was wondering because we're finding in society now that females, what you bring to the table is so positive. Can you share with us what you felt like your the positiveness of actually being a female brought to this team? Oh, I think I brought. There were so there were two women on the team. Okay, uh, the other one didn't get to the top, and she battled with the altitude. So she she kind of had less input into the climbing higher up on the mountain. But I think women bring two things. We are more collaborative and more cooperative. Mm. We're we're less likely to be um, uh, trying to establish our authority in a pecking order. Who's the strongest? Who's the fastest? Who's the most important? The downside of that is we sometimes don't speak up when we have things to say that are important and need to be taken into account. The upside is we're much more likely to try and get the team to pull together than to try and dominate the team or go off and sulk because we feel we aren't being given sufficient recognition within the, yeah, yeah. Did you, did you find yourself kind of changing though throughout? I mean, did you, did you sort of navigate it by what you were experiencing at the time or did you look back in reflection and think, wow, why didn't I step up here or step up there? And I don't mean physically step up, but, but you know, say what oh, you need to say. Or, or I, did, I did both. You did, good. In the course of the expedition, I learned to step up to some extent. But I still, even all these years later, have to take a deep breath if I'm going to do this. It doesn't come naturally. You know, that thing about waiting for a space in the conversation so that I can contribute, it doesn't happen. Nobody creates a space for you. You've got to step into the noise, put your elbows out, literally, and push a space for your voice. And even now I don't like it, although I can do it. Back then it felt terribly, oh, I don't know, pushy, overbearing, aggressive uh, to be trying to do it. And I do think that's a thing we're socialized into about, you know, waiting our turn and being sweet and polite and respectful instead of just stomping into the middle of the argument and shouting until your voice dominates. Right. Well, because once again, you wouldn't be taken seriously or people might not listen to you because they would just, you know, count you off as a, as a nasty girl. <laughs> I mean, the other thing I think that comes again from the woman's side is somehow the men had complete confidence in the authority of their opinion based on relatively little experience. None of us were super experienced. You know, no South African had ever climbed Everest. There was almost nobody with 8,000-meter experience. We were the probably one of the least experienced teams on the mountain. It didn't mean we weren't good enough to get to the top. Right. But somehow I was the one who was going like, I'm very aware of how inexperienced I am, so I'll keep quiet. However, one wrong move could kill you. (laughs) 
right? I mean, somebody could take you in a wrong direction or say the wrong, give the wrong advice and it could kill you. I mean, this is big. Exactly. It's big. You've still got to say that in the end, I have to accept or reject these decisions because they are literally potentially life-threatening. Oh my and gosh. it seems to me that, you know, men with le- relatively not much more experience seem very confident in their opinions about everything. I'm sure. I think sure. that thing about women being a little too perfectionist. Until we're 100% certain, we don't want to step up. Whereas men appear to be, be okay with being about 44% certain and still acting as if that's the left commandment. I have a thought on this. Let's go back because I, I read... I find this interesting for myself. Um, I read where you went to an all-girls school before before the university in South Africa. And I did a lot of research on all-girls schools, as I have a daughter. And I went to many of them and listened to their speeches about the schools. And they really advocated that these same-sex, single-sex, whatever you want to call them, education is very empowering for girls because you don't have those boys in the classroom that are saying, jumping up and saying, I know. And therefore the girls tend to speak more clear, you know, they're, they're, they feel more comfortable and safe to just get up and speak and that it's very empowering. Did you find that going to an all girls school or do you reflect on that and think that that had any bearing on your ability to be more confident? Hmm. Or have you ever thought of it? <laughs> well, the trouble is I spent my entire life at an all-girls school. So I, I will I, I do think it's actually a reasonably good thing because one thing, a couple of things weren't happening. Nobody was dumbing down their level of intelligence to try and score points with any boys in the class, exactly. for example. There was no situation in which you weren't good at maths or physics or chemistry because girls didn't and boys did. The girls who were good at maths were just good at maths and got on with it. But I think what it perhaps didn't prepare me for was how to own the space Mm. in a mixed team where men did seem to step up with such ease and such complete confidence in their opinions, whether or not their opinions had any basis in fact whatsoever. They just just handed their opinions out anyway. But I'm not sure whether that's just me being relatively introverted or whether being at a mixed school would have helped. Well, did you have brothers or anything in your family? They were so much older. Okay. I was effectively, I'm not an only child, but because I was born so late, based on my mother thought it was the menopause until the doctor said, (laughs) no, no, you're having a little surprise. Yeah, they were so much older than me. But I, I feel more like an only child. Well, let's go back to uh, you on the mountain. I think there's a really um, exciting lesson to learn. So when I talk to my corporate audiences, and one of the things I'm trying to illustrate is that a lot of the difficulties are we bring them ourselves. Mm-hmm. They're contained within us. And I use as an illustration the knife-edge ridge that runs in the last couple of hours of the climb. So we got to the start of it at 8 o'clock in the morning and got to the summit about two hours later. And you have this extraordinary ridge with this sort of 2,500-meter drop, between eight and 10,000-foot drop on either side, into Nepal and into China. And you have to walk along it. And I use this as an illustration of 
people being caught in their own mental difficulty. Because people look at the drop and they're obsessed by, oh, my God, I would die. But yeah, honestly, you don't need 8,000 feet to kill yourself. You know, kind of eight feet, frankly, is enough. <laughs> 80 feet will certainly kill you. Uh, so it's an irrational fear. And in fact, the ridge itself, if you focus on it step by step by step, it's a footpath. You're not going to fall off a footpath. But, and I, maybe I shouldn't be admitting this publicly, but the trouble with that story is it's, it's true, but it wasn't my experience. It makes a good illustration because most people are afraid of heights. So they can imagine the stomach-churning feeling. But I'm a Got rock it. climber. I looked at that knife-edge ridge, which you can't see until you get there. So it's kind of like this big unknown final obstacle. So 8 o'clock in the morning, we left at midnight. So I've been climbing without sleep now for eight hours in the dark, in the, in, through the dawn. Finally get to see this famous ridge. And looked at it and went, I can climb that. <laughs> and that, for me... That was the moment where I actually, for the very first time in a nine-week expedition, thought, I am going to climb Everest. Wow. That's the men amazing. were talking about how they were going to climb Everest from base camp. Right. I was like, nah, I'm just here to learn. You know, I'll see how far I can get. I was never prepared to proclaim that I was going to do this. Well, now, and are you doing, are you still climbing? Oh, yeah, Totally. <laughs> And tell us, tell us, like, once you, since you've accomplished what you've already done, now what would be some of the future goals or challenges? Because it sounds like you're a person now who likes to continue to challenge yourself. I do, but I think that I, I think I think about it slightly differently from what a lot of people expect because I, you know, climb mountains, which have a, have a very obvious goal. And because I work in what I call the success industry, uh, where we're sort of selling achievement and inspirational, you know, and, you know, if you dream it, you can do it and winners never quit and all this sort of stuff. Actually, I like the journeys. So I'm not out to conquer. Climbing, we fail a good deal of the time and we need to. If the weather is too bad, if the snow conditions are wrong, if people in the team are ill, you have got to turn around. It's not a marathon. You can't just sit down on the pavement and call a taxi on your phone. You've got to be able to climb out of a dangerous situation. So turning, turning around is a great skill, knowing when to say enough already. You absolutely want to be able to quit. So I'm interested in the journeys, and I'm interested in the gray area where do you go on, do you turn back, how do you judge, what are the skills you need? And so I'm not trying to pursue ever harder, ever higher mountains. I'm trying to pursue journeys and experiences where I can play with these skills while being out in wild and beautiful and remote places. Nature, which is so amazing. Well, it sounds like you have to have an amazing sense of your emotional intelligence and a real intuitiveness, or at least be tapped into that when you're doing any of these kind of adventures? You do. And I think that's really interesting because a lot of these decisions are made in this gray area. And you can say it's gut instinct. You just have a feeling this, doesn't, this isn't coming together well. Uh, time to back off. But I don't think it's, you can just say, oh, intuition. Intuition's enough. Intuition is based on training and skill and experience. 
So even now, after all these years, I still redo courses about avalanche safety and navigation and medical skills. I continue to read about the latest research around team behaviors and why people make poor decisions in teams, the ways in which in wilderness, uh, the weakest voice or the most conservative voice can be drowned out as everyone eggs each other on to make poor decisions. That All of that interests me. And yes, it's intuition, but it's intuition based in training and skill and experience. It's not intuition just based in sort of woo-woo. Yeah, what you're feeling. I have a feeling. Mm-hmm. Right. Do you have a, uh, oh, I love your kitty cat there. Uh, <laughs> her cat just walked in front of her. Cleo. Uh, oh, good. I love it. Um, so can you have a book that you can, rec- a book or two that you've read recently that you feel is, uh, you would like to share with our ladies? Ooh, that's interesting. What's interesting right now, I think in the outdoor adventure space, is is a big push to having more women's voices uh, in the space in a way that there wasn't um, before. And so for me, well, let me recommend a, a real oldie, which I love, and that's the reason I got involved in the Himalaya in the first place. It was... The book is called A Woman's Place, and the author is Arlene Bloom, and she led the first all-women's expedition to the Himalaya. It's an American expedition. And what I love about her is, much as I love millennial women, they do sometimes act as if they invented adventure, and no woman had ever done anything before they came along. And Arlene Bloom was out there in the 1970s putting together this amazing women's expedition. And it's a great story, super controversial, has even got sex on the mountain because they had some Sherpas <laughs> on the team, so it's got all everything. That was what said to me, woman, go into the Himalaya. This is something that maybe and, I and, actually do. And we, and we heard that actually you, you've, tell us the story of how you actually did become uh, interested. Like you, you read an article and you found an article or you read an ad in the paper? Oh, yeah. What was that? Uh, Yes. So, you know, in an ideal world, you would be invited onto your national Everest expedition because everyone would recognize how good you are. But that's not how it happened. I was a climber. I'd I'd been rock climbing. I'd been alpine climbing, Africa, the Andes, the Alps. But it had never occurred to me that I was good enough for something like Everest. I just wanted to go to the Himalaya. And back then, it was so hard to get any kind of opportunity to do that. And then they put together the first South African Everest expedition. And, of course, they invited only men because all the best climbers in South Africa were were men. So few women climbed back then. And then at the last minute, literally about three months before the the team left, a newspaper sponsor decided the whole story just wasn't that interesting, climbing Everest, and they were going to sex it up by running a competition to find a girl to join the team. And the team leader tried to present it as kind of an apprenticeship, but the newspaper acted as if the girl was going to be carried to the top like a flag and sort of waved on the summit. I'm sure they didn't expect you to reach the summit. No. So it was this horrible, sexist, competitive opportunity. And I nearly didn't apply because it was so obviously, you know, uh, a game. Um, And yet... At its heart was an opportunity. And I thought, okay, I'm, I'm, 
imagine some other woman's going to go and I'll spend the rest of my life thinking, oh, that might have been me. So I applied and it was me <laughs> and it changed my life. Yes. And it was not a nice way to join a team. And it made the dynamic between myself and some of the men pretty toxic. And it left me very uh, uncertain about my, uh, my right to be on the team. And that just added to the layers of stuff I had to overcome while also trying to climb Everest at the same time. God. But it worked. It worked. I got sounds, to the top. Sounds like psychologically as much as mentally that, I mean, as much as physically that trip and that expedition had to just be, and I mean, that's why you could write a book about it. It is psychological. I mean, yes, you've got to be strong enough, but the bottom line is most women, if they did enough training, are strong enough. And everybody makes compromises, men and women. If, you know, we carry, we, we look for lighter gear. We, we, we do without a few extra luxuries. We employ more Sherpas to help us carry loads. There are ways of managing physical demands. And the vast majority of it is emotional and mental. Tell us a little bit about living in the Pyrenees. I have not been to that part of the world and how you ended up there. Well, much as I love South Africa, it's terribly short on snow. <laughs> So every climbing expedition was now an intercontinental expedition. And our currency is weak. Our economy is weak. We're one of these sort of developing countries that is, it's rocky. It's two steps forward and one step back or the other way around. Uh, it's a tricky country to try and do expeditions from. So eventually I moved to Europe partly to just pay off debts from expeditions, try and earn some hard currency. But once I got to Europe, I was like, this is lovely. You can earn real money. There's so many more climbers. There's so much more potential. There's so much more business for speakers. And yeah, so I settled in the south. The Pyrenees Mountains are this chain between France and Spain. So lovely southern weather, lots of sunshine. But four months of snow a year, I could ski right through the winter, rock climb almost all year round. The Alps is a two-hour flight away. There's just so much. I think... A lot of people almost fetishize big mountains, 8,000-meter peaks. But actually, the most important thing I've done is build a life where adventure is on my doorstep. I can walk out of my front door and run up a mountainside through the forests. 20 minutes by car, I have backcountry touring skis on my feet, and I'm climbing a 1,000-meter mountain to ski back off it. Some of the best rock climbing in the world is an hour and a half's drive from my front door. Adventure isn't one expedition a year. It's what happens tomorrow because it's Saturday and I'm going rock climbing. It's what happens next week because I've got a couple of hours at the end of the day and I can go running in the forest. You've created the life that you want to yes. live. That is beautiful. Yeah. Well, we like to ask women that we have on the show, what do you wish for women moving forward? confidence, more confidence in themselves and in their right to take up space in the world. And whatever space, whether that space is absolutely marriage and children and homemaking, great. It's a great space to occupy. But equally, it's about going, yeah, the, the North Pole, that looks like a space I could, I could be in. <laughs> Climbing the world's highest mountains, getting onto the astronaut program, being the first human being to step onto Mars, whatever it is, feeling that every space in the world off the planet is available for women just as much as it is for anyone else. 
Well, I think that's an amazing point to leave on. And we are so in awe and so appreciate you taking time to share your experience with us at Ladies Roadmap. And if anyone wants to find you or buy your books, your book is on Amazon, available on amazon.com. And where, if someone wanted to hire you as a speaker, where would they find you? Well, my website, kathyodowd.com, is where I've got all of my speaking material. I live on social media, on Instagram and Twitter, both of them at Kathy O'Dowd. And that's where you'll find all the photos of my adventures, the climbing and the skiing and a little bit about the speaking. And finally, I have a resource for young, for adventurers who are trying to find funding so that they, they can do these kinds of things called The Business of Adventure. And there's a website, a .com website for that. Oh, that's great. We will link all these in our show notes as well on ladiesroadmap.com. Um, Kathy's book... Um, Kathy's book is Just for the Love of It, The First Woman to Climb Mount Everest from Both Sides. We can't wait to read it ourselves. This is good. this has just been phenomenal. You have given us so much strength and wisdom, and we so appreciate you, Kathy, for what you're doing for women to strengthen us and for future women and future climbers. I've loved being part of this, and I really love everyone who flies the flag for older women. You know, there's, I'm probably rock climbing at my highest level ever at 49. I'll be 50 this year. There's no need to give up or retire or step back or, you know, call ourselves middle-aged. We live in a wonderful time for women. There you go. Thank you so much. We could never have said it better. Thank you, Kathy. <laughs> One more thing before we go. Ladies, do you have friends or family that have never listened to a podcast, don't know what one is, and certainly need help downloading? So Jamie's put together a fabulous quick tutorial on our website explaining what a podcast is and how to download. Just go to our website, ladiesroadmap.com, and go to the podcast page, and it's right at the top. Thank you for spreading the word about Ladies Roadmap. Thank you for listening to Ladies Roadmap. We'd like to give a shout out to our amazing music producer, Cam Tyler at litloops.com. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. Just go to www.ladiesroadmap.com and click on podcast. It's as easy as that. Or you can subscribe on iTunes and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Ladies Roadmap. And you know what else? We would love to hear from you. Feel free to email us at info at ladiesroadmap.com. And until next week, remember, the greatest part of a road trip isn't arriving at your destination. It's all the wild stuff that happens in between.